Hello and welcome to the Methodical Methodist Podcast, a podcast where we talk about why the church is still relevant for us today as we explore themes connected to religion, politics, pop culture, faith, and yes, even the church. Together we can find out what it means to live into the mission of the church by making disciples. Now, let's get methodical. Hey friends, welcome to this episode of the Methodical Methodist Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Lay, and I am excited to spend this time talking about how the church is still relevant for us. If you like the show, I hope that you might take a minute to subscribe and rate and even write a review for the podcast. It helps boost the show and make it to where more people can find it. I really do appreciate you doing that. Also, you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash methodicalpod, and you can also find me on Instagram as well. My handle is at methodicalpod, so be sure to check me out there. I also hope that you like the new song in the intro. I want to shout out a special thanks to Joshua Bracken for recording that. He's a very talented organist. And I think that this introduction is especially fitting, considering we are talking about the very person who wrote that hymn. Charles Wesley is one of, if not the most, prolific hymn writers to ever walk this planet. Scholars believe that he wrote anywhere between six to 9,000 hymns, including O oh, Four Thousand Tongues to Sing, the hymn that we just heard a bit of, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Love Divine, All Loves Exhaling, and Christ the Lord is Risen Today, as well as And Can It Be, um, the tail end of the introduction that we just heard as well. But today on the podcast, we're going to explore the life of this incredible hymn writer, Charles Wesley. Before we jump in, let's listen to Josh Bracken play that hymn one more time. Charles is considered to be the co-founder of the Methodist movement along with his brother, John Wesley. We talked about John and his contribution to the Methodist movement on the podcast in episode one, and I'm excited to take a deeper look at John's younger brother, Charles. Charles was born two months early on December 18th, 1707. He was the 18th child of Samuel and Susanna Wesley. Again, there were 19 children in all, but nine of them died before they had grown out of infancy or childhood. Three of them were boys, and seven were girls. And they weren't sure that Charles was going to make it when he was born. He didn't cry or open his eyes when he was first born. But luckily, he did survive. And and finally, uh, around the time of his due date, he started opening his eyes and making some noises and, and actually crying. Um, Like John and his siblings, Charles grew up in Epworth, England, and his father Samuel was a priest in the Church of England there. And when the parish fire occurred to the family home in 1709, Charles was just a baby who was carried out to safety while John barely escaped from the flames and his mother Susanna deemed him a brand plucked from the burning. But at eight years old, 
Charles left Epworth to go and live with his eldest brother, Samuel Jr., and stayed with him until he was 13 years old, some very formative uh, years. And during this time, Charles attended Westminster School, and with the guidance of his brother Samuel, he developed a love for the church, for poetry, and the classics. And while he was a student at Westminster School, Charles actually became the captain of the school, which might be like the equivalent of student body president. He had very good character, even as a young boy. He was known for defending one boy in particular from bullies, and this young boy actually grew up to be Lord Mansfield, the Chief Justice of England. And so later in life, when Charles visited London, the two reconnected and continued their friendship. Charles eventually went on to attend Christ Church College in Oxford University. And while in college, Charles began to have difficulty in finding a way to take his faith seriously. On January 5, 1729, Charles wrote his brother John explaining his state of mind, saying this, My standing here is so very slippery. No wonder I long to shift my ground. Christ Church is certainly the worst place in the world to begin a reformation in. A man stands a very fair chance of being laughed out of his religion at his first setting out, in a place where tis scandalous to have any religion at all. So he, he paints a very bleak picture of his time in college. And it's very strange that, that um, it's very interesting, really, that he's saying these words about his school because this is exactly where Reformation does begin, where a revival begins to take place. Because by his second year of college, Charles had laid the groundwork of what would be called the Holy Club, from which the Methodist movement would develop. He began seriously and methodically studying scripture and practicing spiritual disciplines. He began taking the sacrament of communion each week and was joined by a few of his friends. And, and this behavior, he writes to his brother John, gained me the harmless nickname of Methodist. And then in 1729, John returned to Lincoln College and Oxford University, and he joined Charles and the rest of the Holy Club. And it wasn't long before John had assumed the leadership responsibilities over this group. And as I mentioned in the John Wesley episode, the Holy Club was just one nickname that they received. They were also called Bible Moss and even Bible Bigots because they devoured their Bibles like moss would devour wool. They were also called sacramentarians because they believed in taking communion as frequently as possible. They were also called enthusiasts because they seemed like religious fanatics. And some even called them super irrigation men because it seemed like they were going above and beyond what was required of them, making it kind of seem like they were seeking spiritual and divine approval. But obviously, the term Methodist is the one that stuck, the one that they ran with. And they were very methodical in what they did and how they did it. They would pray and fast and give alms to the poor. They would even uh, visit people in prison. Some even criticized uh, that this religious regiment actually led to one of their members, William Morgan, getting ill and passing away. 
Um, he actually died. And, and despite this tragic event, the Wesleys continued meeting as Methodists in Oxford, and they recruited, believe it or not, more and more people to their club. And then after the death of their father, Samuel, John and Charles made this decision to become missionaries in Georgia. And at first, Charles did not want to go at all. Like He really did not want to go to Georgia as a missionary. But his older brother, John, slowly wore him down. In fact, Charles even writes about this saying, I took my master's degree and only thought of spending all my days at Oxford. But my brother, who always had the ascendant over me, persuaded me to accompany him and Mr. Oglethorpe to Georgia. I exceedingly dreaded entering into holy orders, but he overruled me here also, and I was ordained deacon. So on October 21, 1735, John and Charles uh, go on board the Simmons, and they embark um, on this journey to America. Charles would serve as James Oglethorpe's administrative secretary as well as an Anglican priest at Fort Frederica in St. Simon's Island. And meanwhile, his brother John would serve in Savannah. And on the voyage, Charles spent quite a bit of time actually writing sermons in order to build up his repertoire. Um, John had served as a parish priest prior to this, so he had a backlog of sermons, but this was new for Charles. And so Um, He enters this new land as a greenhorn. He's barely 28 years old, which coincidentally is actually how old I am. And he's writing all these sermons. He's actually using some of John's sermons as well. And and while he's serving at Fort Frederica in St. Simon's Island, Charles has a very unfortunate encounter with some of his church members. And this just kind of escalated very, very quickly over time. It's, it's kind of a bizarre and complicated story. So just kind of stick with me through this. But Charles was really put between a rock and a hard place. A maid goes to Charles and says that her mistress, Mrs. Hawkins, had struck her, that she had hit her. And so she's crying about it. She's very upset, and she's wanting to run away from this situation, run away from uh, Mrs. Hawkins. And, And so Charles takes it upon himself to act as a mediator between this maid and Mrs. Hawkins. And boy, does it not go well. Mrs. Hawkins is furious. She just completely goes off on Charles about this when he confronts her. And then when Charles goes to James Oglethorpe and asks for help for this poor maid, Oglethorpe gets very upset as well. And so he's very cold to Charles, and it just escalates very, very quickly. And then a lot of folks get upset because Charles gets Oglethorpe to pass a rule forbidding the discharge of firearms on the Lord's Day. In other words, people aren't allowed to shoot their guns on Sunday. And so, as you can imagine, this really upsets a lot of people in that colony because they loved to go out shooting on a Sunday afternoon. And so this actually leads to uh, this encounter that happens. Two people shoot guns off on Sunday morning, March the 21st, right outside of the chapel during the communion service. First, Mr. Germain does this, and then Dr. Hawkins, who is a local doctor there, shoots off a gun 
um, as well a little bit later. And both of these men are arrested. And Dr. Hawkins um, is furious. And he actually shouts out, Charles Wesley is to blame for this. He is the one who um, has convinced Oglethorpe to pass this new law. And if anybody dies while I'm in jail, Charles Wesley is the one to blame. And so then we see the wrath of Mrs. Hawkins rise again. And of course, Dr. Hawkins is none other than Mrs. Hawkins' husband. And when Mrs. Hawkins sees her husband being arrested, she absolutely loses her mind. She runs and she grabs a gun and she shoots it off. And then she says, see, I did it too. Now you have to put me in jail as well. But then she doesn't stop there. She goes and she grabs a bottle and she smashes it over the deputy's head and almost kills him. And this huge controversy erupts over this new law. And of course, Charles is the one who gets blamed for it. And it just continues to get worse and worse because then a young woman named Mrs. Lawley gets pregnant and she miscarries her child. And at that point, Oglethorpe even blames Charles for this happening because, of course, he is the reason that the doctor is imprisoned. And so Charles is just shunned by the community. Nobody will speak to him. And in addition to all that is going on, then a woman named Mrs. Welch begins to spread rumors about Charles. And Mrs. Hawkins jumps on the bandwagon, of course. And together they instigate this scheme to destroy the reputations of both James Oglethorpe and Charles Wesley. And so there is a lot that goes into this, but essentially these two women uh, tried to pit Charles and Oglethorpe against one another by spreading these vicious lies and rumors. So first, Mrs. Welch tells Charles that Oglethorpe had made unwanted sexual advances toward her. And then Mrs. Hawkins says the same lie about Oglethorpe to Charles. And little did Charles know that Mrs. Welch and Mrs. Hawkins are, are also telling Oglethorpe that Charles has made unwanted sexual advances toward them. And so, as you can imagine, these rumors just spread throughout the town very quickly. And at first, both of the men believed what these women had said, but it wasn't until a little later that they eventually learned the truth and realized that the entire thing was just nothing more than these lies and false accusations. Prior to them finding out the truth of the situation, Charles is going without basic necessities. His living conditions are terrible. He is going without adequate food. He is sleeping on the ground. He doesn't even have a bed. And so he gets extremely sick. He has a terrible fever. And Oglethorpe is having nothing to do with him. Luckily, Benjamin Ingham, who was one of Charles's friends from Oxford, who was in the Holy Club, is actually working with Charles there in Georgia. And Benjamin realizes that it's time to get Charles's older brother John involved. And so John travels from Savannah, and he is able to kind of clear the air between Charles and Oglethorpe. And the situation between the two men is finally resolved. But after several months of being in Georgia, Charles decides that it's time to go home. So on Monday, July 26th, 1736, 
Charles leaves Georgia to return back to England, and like his brother John, Charles considers his time in Georgia to be a complete failure. He was ill most of the time. He was sick most of the time. His parishioners only offered continual persecution against him. Um, It was a very unfortunate um, situation there. However, despite this failed missionary trip, many scholars believe that this experience was part of what led to the revival in his life that would soon come. Out of this persecution, he was able to find spiritual renewal. He even gets to a point where he wishes he could return to Georgia, but sickness prevents him from doing that. His ship, the Hannah, finally arrives back in England on December 3, 1736. And John also returns back to England a few years later in February 1738. And during this time, Charles is battling illness on and off. And at a few points in his life, it even looks like he might even die. And not only is he struggling with his physical health, but he's also struggling with his spiritual health. While he is very sick, um, a series of three days leads up to one Pentecost Sunday, May 21st, 1738. Charles, in bed, begins to pray for a spiritual awakening. And this kind of marks the beginning of his so-called conversion. After he said this prayer on Pentecost Sunday, he starts to kind of fall asleep. And then suddenly, Mrs. Musgrave, who was a woman who had been nursing Charles, comes into the room and she says, In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, arise and believe, and thou shalt be healed of all infirmities. And this really struck a chord with Charles. This kind of um, had been described as his personal Pentecost, where Charles has this heartwarming experience. And Charles began to write to him about this conversion experience. And coincidentally, his brother John had a heartwarming conversion experience as well, just a few days later, on May 24th, during a Moravian meeting. And together, the two brothers actually sang this hymn that Charles had written uh, during his conversion experience. And then they said a prayer for one another um, after they had met, after these two had had these conversion experiences. Um, Unfortunately, Charles does not say which hymn it is that he wrote for this occasion, but many scholars believe that it was the hymn, Where Shall My Wandering Soul Begin? But another hymn that some folks believe it could be is the hymn, And Can It Be? And both of these hymns were written around the same time as Charles's uh, conversion experience. Charles begins preaching about three times a day after this, and he is actually a very effective evangelist. On one occasion, he even preached for King George III, where John was very reasonable and restrained in his preaching, Charles was much much more emotional when he preached, but both Wesley brothers started to attract negative attention from the Church of England. They both had to appear before the Bishop of London in October 1738 after being charged with preaching an absolute assurance of salvation. And ultimately, the bishop actually sided with the Wesley brothers after they explained that this really had to do with the way a person 
can become conscious of his or her own life and how God accepts and offers this idea of people being aware of their state of salvation, of knowing in your heart that you are indeed saved. And interestingly enough, they were also charged with rebaptizing an adult. And this is something that was against the teaching of the Church of England. And in fact, it also is against the teaching of the United Methodist Church. And so you can go back and check out episode six of the podcast, which is about baptism. You can learn more about that there. Um, But they essentially baptized somebody who was initially baptized by a dissenting clergyman. And so Charles got in further trouble when he actually told the bishop that he had plans to baptize a dissenter. And so this continued to escalate and carried over to the local churches in England, and people started closing their doors to the Wesleys. They were not allowed to preach in most of the Anglican churches throughout England. Uh, The priests didn't like the things that the Wesley brothers were preaching about, and uh, this just kind of escalated over time where more and more of the priests in these churches were closing their doors and not allowing John or Charles to come in and preach. So at the urging of their friend George Whitfield, who had tremendous uh, success preaching outdoors, Charles and his brother John both started uh, doing what they called open-air preaching, preaching outside. And Charles combined his love for music and poetry, and he implemented his voice in both singing and preaching, which really made for a very spontaneous form of worship. He, like John, um, was preaching to these large crowds, and he found a lot of success as well as a lot of uh, persecution. (laughs) Um, The fact that they were barred from the Anglican church and forced to preach outside really pushed them to move away from the Church of England to a degree. Um, That really came more from John and some of the preachers that, that John Uh, had some of the lay preachers, and we'll talk about that here in just a few minutes. But both John and Charles endured ridicule and opposition in their open-air preaching. They faced mobs and violence and hecklers constantly. They were pelted with stones and rocks, eggs, clods of dirt. And then on one occasion, Charles was nearly thrown off a bridge. But in the end, they responded by turning the other cheek. And their nonviolent resistance eventually kind of wore these crowds down. And they were able to eventually reach thousands of people in their preaching. Thanks to George Whitfield, John and Charles adapted and found a new way to reach people. Even though the Wesley brothers would eventually separate themselves from Whitfield because of their debate over predestination and free will, uh, predestination is this idea that God preordains things to happen, and free will is this idea that we are free to make our own decisions, and God is aware of those decisions, but doesn't force uh, a certain outcome. Uh, Whitfield came to adopt a more Reformed theology of predestination, and the Wesleys adopted an Arminian theology of free will. And so this eventually led to two branches of Methodism. You had the Calvinist Methodist with uh, George Whitfield, and then you had the Wesleyan Methodists. And even though this split happened, uh, Whitfield and Charles remained very good friends. 
John eventually purchased a meeting place called the New Room in Bristol, and this is where the Methodist movement really started to take shape. Uh, This became a place of worship and meetings. It contained rooms for lay preachers. It had a room for John, had a room for Charles, even had a room for their mother, Susanna. But despite starting up this new movement, Charles really still considered himself to be an Anglican, a Church of England man, and he would never preach during Anglican worship. In fact, he often attended Anglican worship and received the Lord's Supper in worship. Then he would go out and he would preach to largely uneducated and unchurched crowds. He would go to where the people were. He would preach in fields, in the markets, in the village squares, in the streets. He would preach anywhere he could draw a crowd. Uh, He also would preach to miners, and he would preach in the courtyards. He even preached outside of the churches that had barred him from preaching inside. In fact, Mrs. Seward, the wife of one of Charles's friends, says this about him. Charles Wesley offers Christ to all. As time went on, John and Charles began uh, to become more organized and methodical in how they sustained their Methodist movement. They formed the general rules for the Methodist societies. The rules essentially taught to do no harm, to do good, and to attend all the ordinances of God. Or in other words, to stay in love with God, to do the things that help you to stay in love with God. And so they also formed these small groups, these classes and bands And they also engaged in itinerant preaching, and they mobilized lay preachers as well. They were very methodical and careful in how they did this, though. These lay preachers were mainly men preachers, but believe it or not, there were actually several women who were called to preach in the Methodist societies, like Sarah Crosby and Mary Fletcher. And perhaps John and Charles were more receptive to having female preachers because of the influence that they saw from their mother, Susanna, who um, was actually known for preaching a little bit herself. Um, Charles was, was a spiritual guide for many of these lay preachers, but he was very clear that he believed the lay preacher should only preach, but not administer the sacraments, because they were not ordained through the Church of England. Charles was very, very methodical in the way he oversaw these lay preachers. He was known for being very impatient with them at times. He was especially known for dismissing lay preachers about as rapidly as John would appoint them. And and so Charles was just very critical of these lay preachers. And, And John would often be the one that would come to their defense. John understood the importance of mobilizing these lay preachers in order to grow the movement. Um, But Charles did not agree with this method. He wanted to use educated clergy rather than these uneducated lay preachers who were often working other jobs as well. Uh, John Wesley obviously got his way in the end, and because of that, the Methodist movement grew very quickly. They started holding annual conferences, and the first annual conference that was held was held at the Foundry, which was one of the Methodist meeting places uh, in London, and that took place in 1744. And it was attended by John and Charles and four others. That's it. Just just 
John, Charles, and four others. But by the end of the 18th century, the Methodist Annual Conference had about 100 preachers in attendance. And as the Methodist movement progresses, the Wesley brothers start gaining popularity, particularly among the women. In a letter to the Moravian bishop, uh, Count Zinzendorf, a man named James Hutton wrote this, John and Charles Wesley are dangerous snares to many young women. Several are in love with them. I wish they were married to some good Christian sisters, but I would not give them of my sisters if I had any. (laughs) In other words, uh, they're kind of ladies, man. Uh, These ladies are kind of attracted and drawn to them. And he says, I wish they were married, but I wouldn't let them marry one of my sisters, (laughs) which I think is hilarious. You know, initially, John and Charles had made this decision to be celibate for their whole lives, to never be married. But things change on Friday, August the 28th, 1747, because Charles meets his future wife, Sarah Gwynn, or Sally, as he called her. While he was staying with a man named Reverend Phillips, he had three visitors from the Gwynn family. And one of those visitors was Sally. And when he first laid his eyes on Sally, he says it was like love at first sight. And so they began courting, or as folks say now, they began talking. And they wrote letters back and forth to each other. On one occasion, after Charles had finished up a dangerous six-month preaching trip in Ireland, He stopped by the Gwyn home in Garth, Wales, and his clothes were worn out. He had a toothache. He was sick from traveling in the rain. And during his stay with the Gwyn family, Charles said that Sally had nursed him like a guardian angel. And they continued to kind of date and write to one another. And and Charles was very methodical as he weighed his options and and thought about celibate life, um, unmarried life, and then what it would be like to to be married to Sally. And so he wrote hymns, of course, to help him um, make sense of his feelings. He consulted his friends and family. The person's support, though, that he wanted the most was from his brother John. The two had made a pact that if either of them were to marry, they wouldn't do it without the other's knowledge and consent. So they made this pact to have one another's approval if they were to ever get married. Charles and John talk about this marriage proposal, and they both agree. And according to Charles, the two were of one heart and one mind in all things when it came to Sally. They agreed on this. So when Charles spoke to Sally's parents, they were actually a little concerned about this, particularly about the money. They were afraid that maybe Charles didn't have the adequate and consistent income that would be needed to take care of a wife and a family. So Charles made the decision to print a large two-volume book of his work, two books, entitled Hymns and Sacred Poems. This was very quickly put together, and John didn't even have enough time to exercise his methodical editorial skills Charles was able, though, to bring in more income because of this, and slowly but surely, he started to melt away some of Sally's parents' concerns. About this time, John started to have second thoughts. He he wasn't quite sure if, if Charles should actually be married. 
But Charles quickly rebuked him and convinced him to allow the wedding to take place. And so after all of this, finally on April 8th, 1749, at about 8 o'clock, Charles and Sally were married. And the hymn was sung, Come, thou everlasting Lord, by our trembling hearts adored. Come, thou heaven-descended guest, bidden to the marriage feast. There were only two prenuptial promises that Charles had made to Sally. The first one was kind of a strange one, actually. (laughs) But it was that he would be allowed to continue his vegetable diet. (laughs) Which, no offense to the vegetarians out there, but that just kind of sounds awful to me. Um, The second promise was that Charles would preach one less sermon or travel one less mile now that he was married. And apparently, Charles did a pretty good job of keeping that first promise, but not so much the second. The plan at first was for Sally to travel with him, but she stopped doing that after her first miscarriage. And as a result, Charles began traveling less and less as well. He eventually became uh, became more of a family man. Charles and Sally had eight children in all, but only three of those children survived. Little Charles, little Sally, and little Samuel. Unfortunately, their first child, John, died of smallpox at 16 months old. Their daughter, Martha Marie, died after one month. Susanna, named after Charles's mother, died after 11 months. Selena only lived for five weeks. And John James died after seven months. This first loss of little John was especially hard for the couple. And as a way to reflect and process this, Charles did what he did best. He wrote a hymn entitled, On the Death of a Child. The hymn says this, Dead, dead, the child I love so well, transported to the world above, I need no more my heart conceal. I never dared indulge my love, but may I not indulge my grief and seek in tears a sad relief. You know, it was not unusual for several young children to die back then, but man, that's just so sad. I cannot imagine. That is just a very tragic thing. And, And this ultimately led to Charles spending more and more time with his family and less and less time traveling and preaching. But, but Charles was very instrumental still in the Methodist movement. His brother John was seen as the head of the Methodist movement, while Charles was seen as the heart. And these two brothers had very strong friendship, but they were also very different. Charles is described more like his father Samuel. He was impetuous, short-tempered, and had emotional outbursts. He experienced times of joy and times of complete depression. And and John is described more like his mother Susanna. He was more measured and rational. Oftentimes, Charles would go along with John's leading just because he wanted to avoid a fight. John seems like the kind of guy who would not let things go until you agreed with him. He was just very persistent whereas Charles often went along with his brother for the sake of peace and quiet and avoiding an argument. Personally, I have this theory that 
that Charles was a nine on the Enneagram, which means that he was a peacemaker. And John was more of a one on the Enneagram, which means that he was a perfectionist. Um, But these two personality differences were seen in their preaching styles, in their leadership skills, and in the way that they viewed certain theological ideas. And from time to time, these differences would lead to arguments. Charles and Sally's marriage and their children led to some tension between the brothers. As Charles spent more time with his family, John would often give more demands of Charles, and this at times created some tension between them. However, over time, John found himself yet again in another love triangle. (laughs) You can listen to episode one to hear about the Sophia Hopke story and that love triangle. But John fell in love with a woman named Grace Murray. And they kind of start talking. But meanwhile, she was also talking to another man named John Bennett, who she ended up getting engaged to. Again, same story that happens with Sophia Hopke. But John is still trying to win her over, and and she is kind of stringing him along. And Charles hears about this, and he's hearing all the rumors that are being spread throughout all these uh, Methodist uh, leaders in the movement. And Charles decides that he's going to intervene. And he goes behind John's back, and he takes Grace Murray to go and marry John Bennett, actually takes her. And Charles and George Whitfield serve as witnesses of this wedding. And this is something that truly hurt Charles and John's relationship. Because after this, after John finds out that Charles had done this behind his back, John never fully trusted Charles in the same way ever again. Uh, Poor John just never had very good luck with women. But John did eventually get married to a woman named Molly Vizile. Charles did not approve of her. In fact, he called her a woman of a sorrowful spirit. John never even consulted Charles in this decision. And if you're wondering why I never even mentioned her in John's episode, in episode one, well, that's because he never even mentions his marriage to her in his own journal. Molly and John remained married until Molly died, but by 1777, they were living separately. And the rift between Charles and John did eventually heal, though. Perhaps this is because John came to realize that he rushed into this marriage. Or maybe it's because John became very sick and nearly died in 1753, and the two were able to put aside their differences for the sake of the Methodist movement, but more importantly, for their true brotherly love for one another. Not only did Charles love his brother, but he also had a a great love for the Church of England, which he lovingly referred to as the Old Ship. Charles really viewed Methodism as a renewal group within the Church of England, which allowed people to experience revival, and he considered support for the Church of England a requirement for membership in the Methodist societies. But they were often lay preachers who were pressuring Charles's brother John to move away from the Church of England and to ordain them outside of the official church. And this constant pressure began to actually change John's mind on the matter a little bit. 
But Charles remained very stubborn on this matter. This was a hill he wanted to die on. And ultimately, John sided with Charles on this matter, although maybe not with as much fervor as Charles had. But over time, Charles realizes that separation is inevitable. Despite his best efforts, he could tell that the winds had shifted and separation from the Church of England would happen whether he wanted it to or not. Toward the end of his life, Charles moved his family to London, where Charles took over the chief functions of the Methodist chapels at West Street and the Foundry. He continued to preach, but also tried to find a balance as a family man. And during this time, his frustration with lay preachers and the threat of the Methodist church splitting just grew and grew. John eventually ordained lay preachers that were sent to America to continue the Methodist movement in the New World, and John did this behind Charles's back. And when Charles found out, he wrote, I am thunderstruck. I cannot believe it. John and Charles exchanged several heated letters back and forth, and in the end, John ended up ordaining at least 27 of his preachers. And one, Thomas Coke, he appointed to the level of superintendent. This obviously caused great tension between the brothers, but Charles and John were ultimately able to remain close despite this. Charles was finally able to make peace with this reality that the Methodist movement was bound to break off from the old ship, from the Church of England. Charles, however, was very stubborn, and he remained a Church of England man throughout his entire life. Over the years, Charles's already poor health continued to decline. And just a few days before his death, Charles had his wife, Sally, write down these words. In age and feebleness extreme, who shall a sinful worm redeem? Jesus, my only hope thou art, strength of my failing flesh and heart. Oh, could I catch a smile from thee and drop into eternity. Charles never seemed to fear his inevitable death, but he embraced it. On March 29, 1788, at the age of 80 years old, Charles died with his family surrounding him. In his last breath, he uttered the words, Lord, my heart, my God. He was buried in St. Mary Le Bourne Parish Church graveyard there, which of course was a church in the Church of England. John was not able to be at that funeral service. But, but Charles was a man who lived very passionately and he loved passionately. He felt passionately. He was a poet and a preacher. He was a husband and a father and a brother. He was a man who held strongly to his beliefs. And his contribution to the Methodist movement is undeniable. I know that after doing the research for this episode, I have a newfound appreciation for Charles Wesley and the life that he lived. So I hope that you were able to gain some insight about who Charles Wesley was, the contribution that he had for the Methodist movement, for the things that he cared about, for the ways that he lived his life and reached out to others, the words that he wrote in hymns. 
um, the ways that he expressed his feelings and his theology and his words. And so um, I want to end the podcast in the way that we began it, um, with that song playing in the background, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, with And Can It Be um, there at the tail end. And I don't know, that may be a new introduction and outro for us each week. But um, I hope that you enjoyed this podcast today as we explored the life of Charles Wesley. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Methodical Methodist Podcast. If you have enjoyed this show, I hope you might consider heading on over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show. It is very much appreciated. And until next time, stay methodical.